Are you a paralegal or a legal assistant? Then we've got a platform for you. Share knowledge and get insider industry secrets. Join for free now at InjuryParalegal.com. I'm excited about the episode today. We are joined by Elizabeth Pope on the Injury Paralegal Podcast. She's an attorney. She's an educator. She's been teaching paralegals with continuing legal education and attorneys on how to work up malpractice cases, pre-suit, and how to prevail all the way to trial. We're going to uncover how she assesses and works up dental malpractice cases specifically, what personality traits make an A-level paralegal, and what are some common errors that law firms can spot and how to avoid them. Let's kick off the episode. Are you ready to learn what you don't know about the injury legal space? Well, you're in the right place. This is the Injury Paralegal Podcast broadcasting from the Correll Law Firm in Winchester, Virginia. I'm your host, Bo Correll. Our guest today is no stranger to Aristotle's quote, teaching is the highest form of understanding. She is not just a partner and leader at Marshall Dennehy, a large multi-state practice where she has focused on defending doctors, dentists, physicians, assistants, certified registered nurse practitioners, and nurses in a multitude of malpractice actions. But she is also an established educator on the topics of handling malpractice actions from primers for attorneys and staff on medical malpractice procedures, the top 30 trial mistakes made by attorneys and how to prevent them, of course, to a bevy of other legal education topics. One of the most widely successful and sought after CLEs that I've ever seen was on the topic of dental malpractice actions that she taught. And that course was taught by none other than our upcoming guest. Please join me in welcoming this esteemed attorney and educator today, Miss Beth Pope. Thank you for being on the Injury Paralegal Podcast. Well, thank you so much for having me. It's a really great honor. So um, you have quite a large background uh, when it comes to educating. What, uh, I wanna dive right in here. What topics when it comes to injury paralegals and injury staff do you think is most pressing for them to know and understand? I think it's very important, particularly for a paralegal to really understand these cases when they come in and really be able to dive in from the beginning. And uh, I think that's sort of twofold, but it really comes with the paralegal working hand in hand with their attorney and also with their experts. So that they really understand the case from the beginning because that really informs how you work up a case and all the steps that you take moving forward. Well, from those on the outside looking in, and that might be a plaintiff's attorney like myself, that might be uh, a paralegal student or a paralegal that's not been very versed in dental malpractice actions. Can you, can you take us to a view down to the ground and, and kind of explain how the case starts from the staff perspective and your perspective? Sure. So I work on the defense side. So we are retained in most cases by a dentist or the practitioner's insurance company, they obtain dental malpractice insurance. 
when they get served with a lawsuit or even notice that there's going to be a claim, then the insurance company will reach out and retain myself and our firm. And then we start our investigation. And again, that usually comes with a complaint. Sometimes it can be noticed in Pennsylvania, there can be complaints to the dental board. So it could be defending a dentist for the dental board or just notice that there has been a complaint made. And so we're gonna start our investigation that way. So there's a couple different ways that dental actions can start and that you're aware that there could be an issue. Do you ever get involved pre-suit? We do, we do. Um, it's not as common in dental cases because there aren't too many, I mean, luckily, knock on wood, the, the damages and the injuries from dental cases don't tend to be the sort of catastrophic nature that you see in some of the med mal cases. It's not someone who has unfortunately died in the middle of a surgery where you immediately know something's wrong and litigation is going to ensue. But we have in the past become involved and quite frankly, and we counsel a lot of dentists about this, a lot of issues arise when dentists aren't getting paid and they sue their um they sue their patients in small claims court. Right, right. <laughs> payment. Yeah, and then right. all of a sudden it comes up the reason that we wouldn't pay was because substandard treatment or something. Treatment and then things spiral. Wow. Ah, so it opens up the door. Yes. Mm. I've heard of that before, where sometimes uh, medical providers, for example, I mean, they, they know they're owed a good deal of money from a patient, especially when they go out on a limb and they start treating the patient and they, you know, it's a cash deal, for example, and then the patient tries to walk out on it. So how often does, does a billing dispute open up this whole, uh, this whole portal here? A, a fair amount, quite frankly. And wow. it, we'll usually see it in small claims cases because it's usually a, a patient who the dentist sues and then they bring these claims and then it starts to spiral. But I would say there, there are a good number of claims to the, to the point where we have counseled dentists, you know, really, really think if it's, if it's worth it. Just walk away from it. Right? Exactly. Sometimes. This could be a great, a bigger pain than you think. Right. Right. Um, so, so when the case first comes to you, what form is it in and, and what kind of conversations have you had with the claims representative? So when we get in Pennsylvania, where I practice, claims can start in one of two ways. They can start with a writ, which is basically just a single page document. You don't have any facts about the case, but it tolls the statute of limitations. You file it and you say, we are going to be bringing a lawsuit. And then it's actually up to the defendant that can really just sit because it tolls the statute of limitations. So it's then up to the defense to then precipice them to file a complaint and get moving. So sometimes we get that other times we will get a complaint, which again, you know, lays out the actual facts, sets forth the parameters of the case and gives us a better idea as to what the issues are. And then, you know, we work with our adjuster to work with our dentist or whoever the practitioner is to get, first get all the records. That's really the first thing we want to do is get the records and see what the heck is going on. Well, what are the kind of differences, if any, 
that exists between dental actions when it comes to opening up the file, researching and gathering records and medical malpractice actions from at least the defense's perspective? So some of it has to do from a just a practical risk management standpoint that a lot of the dental cases, the damages aren't as large and the cases aren't as big. Now, mm-hmm. there are certainly a subset of dental cases, particularly a failure to diagnose oral cancer or sort of mm-hmm. one that jumps out that are the you know much higher value. But compared to a lot of the medical malpractice cases, the, the values on the cases aren't as high and that can direct where in a med mal case, we may get five experts on board. Right. Dental malpractice case, we're probably only going to get one, maybe two experts mm-hmm. board, but we will very early on in any of those cases get our experts on board because as much as we've done this work and have a general understanding of the medicine, we let our experts really guide us as to the medicine and what's going on. Now, you know, every play has certain actors in different roles. And the play of a dental malpractice action, who are the different actors here, you know, when it comes to staff, when it comes to the claims adjuster, when it, you know, please educate our listeners a little bit about who are the, di- the different roles here. Sure. So as an as a insurance defense attorney, we're, we're in what we call a tripartite relationship. So while we are retained by the dentist's, uh, malpractice insurance. So obtained mm-hmm. and our bills are paid by the malpractice insurer. Our ethical duty goes to the dentist, to our client. That is our client. So we call the the tripartite relationship. Mm-hmm. It's we're all together, but our, our immediate duty and our immediate representation is the client is the dentist or the practitioner. And then um, most, and here's, here's actually a, a fairly big difference in dental cases versus medical malpractice cases. Most medical malpractice insurance policies have what's called a consent provision where the case cannot be settled without the doctor's consent. And a lot of that is because there's a national reporter's data bank that any settlement gets reported to. Now it's not public, but it affects a doctor's malpractice insurance rates. So cases cannot be settled without the doctor's written approval and consent. For dentists, that's not always the case. I'd say, because I have to pay more for that type of policy, and I'd say it's maybe about 75% don't have a consent policy. So some of the settlement decisions are driven more by the insurer and their input, whereas in a medical malpractice case, You could have a case that everyone wants to settle, but if the doctor does not want to settle and wants to go to trial, there's nothing, you're going to trial. So that that is a pretty big difference in, so that's something you always want to also investigate pretty early on is whether there's a consent policy or not, because it really affects how the potential to possibly settle a claim down the road is going to play out. And uh, so, uh, so we've got your claims adjuster. And then you've got your provider. And within the uh, dentist's office, you obviously, you also want to see who's covered under a policy because the dentist, sometimes their practice may or may not be covered 
under their insurance. Some have separate policies for their practice. Others simply have their own insurance. And uh, then you also want to see if, if the practice is covered, are any of the agents of that practice then covered? So uh, if we've got a dental assistant, uh, you can also have an EFTA, which is an expanded function dental assistant. They can do a little more. They have a little more schooling. Uh, take some x-rays. Uh, don't quote me on exactly everything that they can do, but you, you have different uh, some different roles within the dental office. And uh, then, you know, you usually have an office manager. They're usually not involved unless there's an issue of spoliation of records. But again, there's it's not really a claim for spoliation, but they can get pulled in in some ways. But those are sort of those tend to be your big players in a in a dental case. Now, when it comes to the actual uh, people in the firm, how do you delegate those roles as a leader, as someone that, that moves the case along or reacts? I mean, a lot of times defense tactics actually are to not move the case along for particular tactical reasons. You know, what what roles does the legal assistant have, the paralegal uh, as compared to, the, I mean, the attorney's pretty self-explanatory. What, what about those staff people? What should they be doing? So I, I like to have our paralegals very involved. Uh, if possible, I like to bring them along for the first meeting with the client, with the dentist. And for one very simple reason, and it's sort of good to know, unlike in a lot of medical records, there is no standard abbreviation for dental records. And uh, there's also not a requirement for dentists as the, the other medical professions have moved to electronic medical records. Most dental records are still handwritten. And if you think doctors have bad handwriting, dentists are just, they're not great. And, uh, and they all use a different abbreviation. So one dentist might use one abbreviation and another dentist might use the same thing and it means something completely different. So it's really important for dental cases to sit down with your dentist and literally have them go through everything the charts so you know what it means because it can you might think you know what it means and you're just completely off well in reviewing these records you've seen so many different types of dental injuries what are the common ones and what are some outliers that you've seen so i think some of the big types of cases that you see you see a lot of cases involving extractions mm -hmm. so a pulling teeth. And uh, usually the biggest injuries you see from extractions are uh, nerve injuries. So mm -hmm. the trigeminal nerve and uh, the, the, the inferior alveolar nerve is the nerve that goes probably closest to most of your teeth that are, is going to get injured with extractions, particularly molars. Mm -hmm. Here's another thing I think that's important to understand is that Although there are specialties in dentistry, at most, at least in Pennsylvania, and it's my understanding of most places, a general dentist can do, there's, there's no limitations on what a general dentist can do other than oral surgery, but mm -hmm. you go to an oral surgeon to get a wisdom tooth, which is a third molar removed, but a general dentist can remove a third molar. There's nothing to prevent them from doing that. I guess that raises the qualification versus are they competent question. Is that exactly. something that you come up with? Yeah. Particularly for third, particularly for third molar 
And if there are issues as to whether if those wisdom teeth are partially impacted or fully impacted, there'll usually be a claim that at some point you should have referred this patient out to an oral surgeon. They're slightly better handled to you know, do that type of extraction, but there's nothing to prevent a general dentist from doing that. Mm-hmm. So that is, that is certainly a claim that you'll see frequently. How often do you see, you mentioned communication, how often do you see communication issues where a dentist gives a referral to have an extraction and the oral surgeon decides to do more and there's informed consent issues? That seems like that would arise frequently. And and does that arise and how do you handle those types of communication issues between providers? So there are definitely informed consent issues. And uh, so obviously I can only speak to Pennsylvania and we are limited. You only need to get informed consent for a surgical procedure, which is something that actually removes a portion of your body. It's a, it's a bad term, but so there are really only a few limited dental procedures that you need to obtain informed consent. So extractions, you need obtain informed consent. Root canals, you do not need informed consent because you're not removing enough tooth structure for a uh, root canal. So you don't need to get informed consent. Now, when uh, patients are being referred out to other providers, the biggest issue we actually see comes back and becomes an issue more of contributory negligence of plaintiffs not following up and not following mm. Plan and not going to that referred to provider. Mm-hmm. And we find that there's, there's a lot of issues there. And uh, when there are multiple providers in place, I, I will say that, you know, particularly from the defense perspective, we will take all of those other defendant, uh, not defendant, other dentists, particularly the subsequent dentists. I think it can be a very strong defense tactic, one, just from a professional standpoint, from a professional sort of realistic standpoint, a lot of people don't like to speak poorly of their local colleagues. And uh, there is a lot of, um, I'd say, a wide berth in dental treatment, Un, you know, unlike medical where you've got a lot of insurance where things are covered, there's a lot more left up to the patient and what treatment plan they choose to undergo. And it frequently driven by cost. So frequently a dentist will give multiple treatment plans and they might say, hey, this treatment plan is the best and it's gonna be, we're gonna have to extract a bunch of teeth, put implants, we're gonna have a whole bridge and it's gonna cost you $40,000. And they say, nope, what's what's the cheapest you can do to get me on my way and get me out of here. And uh, have issues with that as well. Exactly, I mean, when a patient does not follow the guidance of a medical provider, also on the, uh, well, especially on the plaintiff's perspective, that can kill the case. So, you know, it could be contributory negligence where you're not following up with doctors, doctors or, uh, met, or, or dental professionals, but also there's a concept, at least in Virginia, called the failure to mitigate damages. That means that even if something happened in that first dental visit and it was bad, 
you shouldn't have to suffer. The, the, the law recognizes that a reasonable person wouldn't go on and on and not get subsequent, subsequent treatment uh, in a seasonable period of time. You have to be seen. You can't just you know, grin and bear your pain, uh, and that might cut off a plaintiff's ability to seek certain types of damages. So you, if you're hurt, you need to get care and you need to do so seasonably. One of the things I want to get into after the commercial break is experts. How do you kind of whittle down the experts? What kind of criteria should you look for? So let's get to that after the break. Whether it's you or you in conjunction with professional staff, how do you find a credible defense expert? What's your, what's your process there? So some of it is just from experience from, I, I am fortunate enough to work in a large firm where I have colleagues that have been working in the industry for years and can make you know, recommendations this, this person is, you know, speaks very well. This holds up very well. A lot of it is also just doing some online research. I mean, it's always my preference, particularly on the defense, to have a local expert. Because I think as soon as you, and unfortunately for the plaintiff side, I think because you come up against local practitioners that do not like to testify against their local colleagues, some of the plaintiffs are forced to go outside of the jurisdiction, to go outside of the state. And it gives the defense an immediate, when you're at trial, you say, you know, they've got the higher gun. They had to fly this guy in from California. They couldn't find anyone in Pennsylvania to testify against your Pennsylvania dentist. And so I think having a local dentist immediately, certainly from my perspective, helps, helps connect with the jury. That They're already have that connection. And I'll go... I'm in Philadelphia. We obviously were lucky enough to have some amazing dental schools. We have the University of Pennsylvania. We have Temple University that both have fantastic dental schools. I will go and usually go through their faculty, go through and see some of their alumni. And then I just start to talk to people and feel them out. And you always have to have an eye, unfortunately, because we prepare every, I prepare every case like it is going to a jury trial. And I think about that from day one. And you may have someone who is incredible on paper and you talk to them and you just get the sense that they cannot communicate. They're probably brilliant, but they just cannot communicate to anyone. So you, when you're interviewing experts, I think it's really important to keep an eye towards are they gonna be someone who's engaging that a jury's gonna like? And are they able to communicate effectively? Because some of the smartest people I know are not the best and most effective communicators. I like that uh, perspective of you look at someone that's local because as a plaintiff's attorney, it's very difficult to find exactly what you mentioned, a local uh, physician that even if they acknowledge there's been a breach in the standard of care that's willing to testify you know, um, but uh, it's kind of like snitches. Exactly. Just get stitches, right? That's, <laughs> and that's certainly an advantage that the defense has that I think they should exploit whenever, oh, yeah. because absolutely. It's, it's absolutely an advantage with a jury. Uh, how big of a factor is it for you or your staff to, to 
look at defense experts and whether or not they've testified for the plaintiff, for the defense? Should Is 50-50 something you're aiming for? I mean, is that a factor at all? It is. It, it certainly is something that I aim for. 50-50, 60-40. I mean, I, I, I don't think anyone wants to put an expert up there that says they testify 100% for the defense or the plaintiff, because quite frankly, that's, that's not what I'm looking for. I, I want an expert who is going to give me honest feedback, who isn't just going to tell me what they think I need to hear, because I'm also retaining an expert to look at a case and tell me if it's a bad case, this is not a defensible case. You need to settle this case. So I, I need someone who's also going to be realistic and is going to be honest with me about the medicine and the, you know, the facts of the case. But I, I certainly look for someone ideally who testifies for both sides. Well, uh, while you're narrowing this expert down, you're also, I guess, every now and then, maybe not explicitly, measuring the performance of your staff. You know, I'm certain you have probably multiple legal assistants, multiple paralegals. My question to you is this. When you look at your top tier legal assistants, your paralegals, what differentiates the, the A-grade paralegals when it comes to the procedure and working up a case from, from those types of staff that, that might just be, you know, phoning it in? So I, I think the, the really top tier paralegal work that I've seen are paralegals that go out of their way to make sure that before they look at a single record, they understand what the issues in the case are. So first, be, before they're looking at the medical records to summarize and bring things to my attention, they, they truly understand the medicine and what we're looking for and the multiple issues there, because obviously there's usually more than one issue, but are we looking for if a patient didn't follow up? Are we looking for, did they have prior complaints of numbness? Have there been other issues where they not following prior dentist recommendations? And then from there, it's really, I, I really appreciate and quite frankly need because we can't always follow up a paralegal who's going to be aggressive, who's going to look through those records and find all of the other prior treating dentists, the prior providers, and on their own subpoena those records and then go through them and take those next steps without always having to come back to us and really take the steps to build up to get all the records that we need. Same thing when we have experts, we have our paralegals do a lot of our sort of expert research on the other side. So digging to find to, you know, find transcripts of experts, going that extra mile too. If you know an expert testified at a trial and the attorneys don't have those transcripts, calling the courthouse, finding who the court reporter was, because even if the transcript hasn't been typed, you can call the court reporter and that they will type that transcript to get those transcripts of prior testimony that are really gonna be critical at the end of a case in order to cross-examine the other side's experts. Are there any treatises or textbooks or just authorities out there that you look to as a dental malpractice attorney to see whether or not there's a clear breach? Is it, I mean, you, you can marshal the facts, but other than, other than your own experience doing this for so long, are there any books uh, that, 
that paralegals or legal assistants should look to to kind of narrow those issues? There aren't really any great gold standard dental treatises. I, I will say that depending on the issue, there are various, uh, the ADA does put out some guidelines. Uh, the American College of Oral and Maxifacial Surgeons puts out guidelines. So there are guidelines out there for various issues. It's just very dependent on what the issue is. And, and they're usually pretty broad. The only one I will say that it recently came up, and again, there are also American uh, College of Cardiology guidelines, are issues for pre-medication of patients. This is the thing that came to mind, that they've actually decreased the number of medical conditions that if you come in for a dental procedure for extraction, there used to be a, a litany of things that a dentist would then have to give you uh, prophylactic antibiotics about 24 hours before your procedure, before you did anything. And recently they came out with guidelines that significantly reduced the conditions that you would have to have in order to need prophylactic antibiotics. But for really for general issues, there's no great guideline, which, you know, for better or worse, makes your expert really, really important. <laughs> Well, getting back to what you said earlier about uh, paralegal staff, what are the traits that make an A-level paralegal? And it seems to me that in marshalling all those things you said together, it comes down to not only competence, which is obvious, but initiative. Yes. How important is initiative in moving these cases to conclusion for a paralegal to exhibit? It is absolutely critical. And I will say, you know, we like, I like to practice, we like to push cases and move them. And I rely upon my paralegal to get me all the records. We want to take depositions early. I, I don't want as an attorney to be taking the deposition of the plaintiff right before a discovery deadline, because then if you have to do other discovery, you don't have any time. We like to mm -hmm get the records early, really get things so you can get depositions and still have plenty of time to keep working the case up. So it, it's absolutely critical. Do you have a paralegal training program at your firm or I mean, do you mentor them specifically? How do you get paralegals up and up to date on the dental malpractice space? We do have a general training practice at the firm, but unfortunately some of it is just trial by fire and uh, learning the learning the records, sort of learning the lingo. I think particularly in dental cases, one of the best things you can do, you can look online, all the teeth are numbered. And when you know what number they're talking about or just some of the very general terms, like when you see buckle, it means they're talking cheek side or lingual means they're talking the tongue side. Um, those sort of terms, occlusal, they're talking about the bite, are important to know just sort of the general issues. And uh, just doing some, quite frankly, general Googling <laughs> really helps. That's the best free education source ever. Absolutely. <laughs> I, I mean, I use it. I've got, a I Google. I've got this Lexus account. It's amazing. I can look anything up, verdicts and settlements, any kind of case law. But so many times I end up using Google. I mean, I'm the same exact way. <laughs>
um, it kind of makes you wonder what kind of future they have if Google's just taking everything over. Exactly. Well, and, and I would say for paralegals, and I think this is hard. I know as an attorney, this was hard for me. When you're talking with your expert, I think it's important to remember, one, you're, you're paying them. So a lot. You're paying them a lot. So you can call them with questions. And I know I would talk to experts at first. I was so afraid to sound like I didn't know what I was talking about. Right. Just listen to what they said and said, okay, 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 just to get off the phone. And then I'd look at my notes and realize I have no idea what this person told me. So I think it's really important to sort of, it's okay to not know the medicine. That's, they know the medicine. Their job is to teach you because then I need the paralegal or me to then we're going to have to teach the jury. So don't be afraid to say multiple times. I don't, you got to tell me again, I don't understand this. Walk me through it, take it slower so that you actually understand the medicine. Yeah, I like to say, you know, talk to me like I'm a kindergartner. I'm not going to be offended, but it, it gets really difficult too, because you know, these experts are thousands of dollars an hour, some insane amount. One just quoted me uh, $500 for five minutes. Uh, I'm like, this is your okay. Small- that's ridiculous. I know it's ridiculous. This is the other day. And I'm thinking to myself, you know, you are my client's physician. I'm the plaintiff's lawyer. You're billing your client to, I mean, your patient to, to tell the attorney if they're maximum medical improvement. Does that make sense? Does that, does that seem ethical to you? Uh, it's just insane. Uh, but, you know, you raised a good point about, uh, you know, you, you mentoring so many people. And I know your firm has a, a, a small program there. Some of our listeners and viewers are paralegal students. And one of the issues that they have quite frequently is how to get their foot in the door. You know, they can go to these paralegal schools and they teach general knowledge, but not enough to get into the door of a specialized firm like yourself. How do they get in the the door? I mean, some of our staff have started either as legal assistants or file clerks and work their way up. Others have just come and said, I'm bright, I'm willing to learn. I mean, it's, I don't want to say, the medical records, it's complicated, but if you're, I mean, you can pick it up. And if you're really just looking for people who are, you know, bright and interested and interested in the law and interested, and I think one of the things that I'm always looking for is someone that gets not that isn't just coming in just to do their little piece and walking away sort of wants to see the bigger picture how what is a paralegal they're doing to fit into the larger case and the legal strategy and wants to be involved in that and I think when you show that then I just want to bring you in and I want to show you more and work with you and uh, you know take you to depositions and or at least say look you know read these depositions sort of get an idea of how we're using the work that you're doing and I think that helps as well. And it goes back to what you said earlier, being proactive. Right. Being inquisitive, being intellectually curious. Those are all very important traits. You know, if I give an assignment, a lot of times attorneys like myself, we want the end result and you use your own ingenuity and uh, gumption to get it done. And uh, that's, 
know, that thirst to be helpful is uh, so, so attractive and potential job candidates and people that are willing to be humble too um, and, uh, and willing to work their way up. So uh, yeah, I agree with you on that. Um, now you deal a lot with the plaintiff side. Yes. Where have you seen the screw ups on the plaintiff side? Uh, you know, when it comes down to whether the attorney's not educated on the issues, but staff specifically, where have you seen them flub and, and how can they fix that? So the, the big thing that comes to mind immediately is uh, just in particularly in redactions. And I think that plays a couple different roles. Uh, courts have really taken an increased interest in making sure that exhibits are appropriately redacted for HIPAA information. So, you know, social security numbers, uh, birth dates before things get filed need to be redacted out. But I think also, and this is certainly where a lot of paralegals come in preparing for trial is understanding what are sort of the key things that need to be taken out of records that could cause a mistrial. And the first thing that jumps out for me is insurance information. I've seen records come up that have big things with insurance and at least particularly in Pennsylvania, references to insurance are precluded. And if the jury is informed that someone has insurance, it could lead to a mistrial. So it's certainly, that's that's a big thing that I see that since people in a tizzy when a paralegal, they put up a record and it hasn't been redacted and it's in for the jury and can sort of certainly cause a lot of issues. So I've, I've certainly seen that. <laughs> um, I would also say, I, I think particularly on the, the plaintiff side, I think requesting records early and then from the providers that you intend to uh, potentially bring a claim against and then double checking those records and making sure that the originals are brought to depositions because it's certainly an issue and on the defense side it's the thing that you know keeps us up at night is uh, changes to records anything that looks like a provider has added something has changed after the fact after they've learned that they've been sued we have certainly had cases where the plaintiff's counsel you know before the case was brought because obviously any patient has a right to their records. A patient can request their records from their provider and the provider is required to provide the full records. So they have the records that provider provided. And then I have the records that my client provided me that are way more detailed than the records that were given to the plaintiff can cause an issue. And uh, I think also the importance of having the original and examining the original of deposition is you can also see when there's different pen colors because we've also had that when you have a black and white copy, it looks like the record is exactly was made contemporaneously. And when you look at the original, you can see that there are different pens being used and it certainly raises some flags that perhaps some things were added after the fact, after they were aware of the lawsuit. So I, I think those are issues that sometimes plaintiffs don't follow up enough that that should be because it, it's it's 
not, it's something that's very difficult to overcome on the defense side. Even if it is completely innocuous, it is very difficult to overcome any sort of alteration of records. That's right. And, you know, getting the type of original records needed for evidentiary purposes and preserving it and knowing which version is which is so, so, so important. So organization, you know, let's add that on top of initiative. Yes. To, to being able to know the different versions of, of records, to bait stamp them and to categorize them. You know, I have a very small law practice, but in my law practice, it's so critical that we know when a record comes in. So we're even changing the file name in, in, the, uh, in the document to say received such and such date. So we know if we request a, a different version or a, a newer version or, you know, three months later, request the same records that it, we say received a different date. So we can compare those two things to make certain there's no changes to those original records. And, uh, I, and I think I was going to say, and I think that leads to another point for paralegals that having a tight diary system is very important to follow up on outstanding records. Sometimes it's easy to you send your subpoenas out and then you wait for the records to come back, but you really need to be proactive. Again, we're coming back to being proactive about following up and making sure not just that the records have been received, but that the providers fully complied with the subpoena. I frequently will ask for films and photographs and frequently those are not provided the first time around. And you have to, when you get those records, go through them first, just to make sure they even comply with the subpoena so that you know early on if you have to go back and try to get everything that you asked for and are entitled to. Yeah, that's a, that's a very good point. I didn't even think about that. But uh, yeah, you, you certainly need a diary system with the, the date requested, date received, uh, yeah, who requested it, who you spoke to. It's also so critical because one person might say, yeah, it's on its way. And the, the manager's like, I have no, who are you? <laughs> Who is this patient? I've never heard Absolutely. of this person. And you're like, well, <laughs> but Donnie or Johnny said that the records are being sent. You know, you don't want to have those types of conversations. Exactly. And then sending them free cookies too every now and then. Like, uh, <laughs> never hurts. Hurt. Food never hurts. <laughs> right, right. Especially with the clerks. You know, you always exactly. want to, you want to have a happy clerk. <laughs> um, so Beth, we've talked a lot about the practicalities, the technicalities of working up cases. One of the things I want to do after the commercial break with you is talk about where you see the future. Where do you see the trends going for malpractice cases? So, you know, as an educator, you, you are certainly on the front lines of knowing developments in the law, where you see things changing, and where do you see the future of dental malpractice, malpractice actions? Where, where do you see the trend going? So I, I think we've seen a couple issues starting to arise. Um, in Pennsylvania, we have actually seen uh, somewhat of a different direction moving away from claims for informed consent. So in, in Pennsylvania, a claim for informed consent is a technical battery 
So it's a, if I did not consent to this procedure, so you didn't give me all of the, the material risks that I could, that I should know to make an informed decision as to whether I'd like to undergo this procedure, it's a technical battery. And so your damages are limited to that. However, on the defense side, when there is an informed consent claim, you usually have an informed consent form that goes through all of the risks of the procedure that can be very helpful for the defense to set forth frequently what ultimately happened, that these were known risks of the procedure laid out and presented before the jury. Recently, we had a case, uh, the Superior Court in Pennsylvania stated that if an informed consent claim is not in the case, the informed consent form, the actual contents do not come in because the mere fact that the ultimate uh, injury that occurred was a known risk, they said doesn't actually speak to whether the standard of care was breached. So from the defense perspective, that was not a great that was not a great ruling because you always like to get out there that what happened is something that it, it's not negligence. This is something that can just happen in the ordinary course of dental practice. So we've seen a lot of plaintiffs actually dropping informed consent claims to keep those informed consent forms out of the case and just focusing on negligence actions. And uh, I think similarly, we've seen they haven't been successful yet, but plaintiffs trying to get more of a corporate negligence claim against a practice group. So here we have what's called a corporate negligence claim against hospitals, against nursing homes that provide total health care. And those claims are for policies and procedures. You didn't have the appropriate policies and procedures in place to train your staff and to protect the patient. So they're limited, but so far those claims have been precluded against dental practices, but there's certainly been a push to try to expand that law and include dental practices to have claims for policies and procedures in place. And I think that's also because a plaintiff's attorney can get punitive damages. Is that correct? Yes. Yes, that is correct. You got to watch out for those plaintiff's attorneys. They're real yes, rascals. yes, yes, they will. <laughs> well, uh, Beth, as we start to close this down, is there anything else you'd like to add for our listeners and viewers, uh, people that are paralegals or those interested in being a paralegal? I think a lot of it just comes down to what we've talked about, you know, being intellectually curious. So, you know, go out there and, and do a little research and look, look at the tooth structure and, and figure out what the numbered teeth are and figure out and talk to your attorneys, talk to your experts. I, I love when the paralegals come and speak to me and say, I don't understand what's going on here. What What is this TMJ claim? What is this? I will sit down and talk to you all the time because the more you're interested and the more you understand the case, you're going to work the case up better. It's going to benefit everyone. So I always like to say, come, always ask questions. There's There aren't stupid questions. And the more you know, it's just going to benefit everyone. Yeah, absolutely. Be intellectually curious. And, exactly. And if you want to specialize, you want to get a, a job at a firm that specializes, know the lingo. And what's so amazing is, you know, the years and years ago, you had to go to a library 
and you had to go through the book system and you had to find the right book the right on the right shelf and you had to go through the right chapter and the you know and, and find the, what you're looking for but now knowledge is at your fingertips so if you want to uh, learn about a certain practice area it's free and it's exactly. called google you know and uh, all you have to be is intellectually curious and take initiative exactly so beth thank you so much for for uh talking with us we certainly appreciate your knowledge and uh, thank you for for sharing it all with us and thanks for uh recognizing that teaching is the highest form of understanding you certainly have that understanding thank you for joining us well thanks for having me it's been my pleasure i really appreciate it thank you